God's prison really saved my life. Welcome to Episode 1 of Justice Voices, featuring stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. I'm your host, David Risley. Those words, going to prison saved my life, were spoken by Leonard Joyner when I interviewed him in March 2019. He was serious and went on to explain how prison changed his life. Mr. Joyner and I first met over 20 years ago on opposite sides of a federal courtroom, on opposite sides of the law. He was a defendant, and I was the prosecutor. He was convicted and served 17 years in prison. Now, we're friends and colleagues. Leonard Joyner is a remarkable man. His story deserves to be told. His voice needs to be heard. If you want to see a brief preview before deciding whether to watch the full interview, click on the link below for some short highlights. The full video is indexed by time code, so even if you don't have time to watch it all right now, you can always return and pick up where you left off. But if you like a retired Illinois State Police Major with whom I shared this video, he called me the next day and said he'd watched it twice. He kept telling me over and over he found it impactful and said it should be watched by everyone, including police trainees. Now, listen to Mr. Joyner's story and hear his voice. Mr. Joyner, the first time we met was on opposite sides of a courtroom, on opposite sides of the law. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Tell us about that. Well, I have been indicted for by the grand jury on a crack cocaine conspiracy charge. And you had been arrested that day and brought into court. Yes, that's correct. And we met and eventually you were, uh, a conviction was entered in that case and you were sent to prison. Yes, that is correct. I was sent to prison. How much time did you spend in prison? I spent nearly two decades in prison. And at the end of that time, you uh, started a program. Yes. Summarize for us what that program is. Well, I started a program called SEAM, which is the acronym for Shifting Into New Gear. We help formerly incarcerated individuals to readjust back to society by providing them a roadmap of service and resource that lead to self-sufficient. And along the way, you ended up reaching out to the previous governor and called his office and wanted to talk to the governor about your program. Yes, that is correct. Uh, I made a call to the governor office and asked to meet with him to discuss the same program with him, knowing that this program is designed to reduce recidivism, which is very high here in the state of Illinois. I received a message that you had reached out to the governor's office to talk to the governor about your reentry program. Yes, that's correct. And they asked me if I would contact you, and I, because that was my area of responsibility as the director of public safety policy, which included criminal justice policy. And so I asked, sure, I'll contact him. What's his name? And they told me, Leonard Joyner. I said, well, I know Leonard Joyner because I was the prosecutor in his case. And we ended up getting together. We had a meeting in the governor's office. I had the uh, 
director of the Illinois Department of Corrections with me, and you had representatives of the uh, uh, community outreach offices of the city of Springfield and Sangamon County. And we had, I also had with me the case agent in your original case, Bruce Harmoning, is that right? Yes, that's correct. That began the re a relationship that leads us to today. And I came away from that and subsequent meetings with the feeling, you have a story that just needs to be told. So today we want to give you that opportunity to tell your story. Thank you. Uh, let's do it in s several parts. Uh, you've got three stories, really. There's the story of your life before prison. There's a story in prison and then what you've become after prison. That's correct. And I'm most interested in the story of what happened after prison. But we have to begin the story uh, back at the beginning. Will you tell us about your life before prison and what led you to end up in prison? Well, first of all, I was born and raised in Mississippi in the 60s. And and uh, my mom and dad is separated later on after 18 years of being married. My dad moved to here to Springfield, Illinois, and it was much easier for me to apply by dad rule than mama rule, cause mama believed in spare the rod, spoil the child. With daddy, it was like Burger King, have it your way. So I moved to Illinois. I slowly began to get into things like stealing into like a lot of criminal activity, but not nothing that would send me to prison because I never wanted to go to prison. And uh, as I grew up, I, I worked a couple good jobs here in Springfield. I worked for the state. Uh, I worked for the Illinois State Fair several years. And then I opened up a business of my own called TCB, taking care of business, a little ice cream shop near the John Hay home. And at this time, my whole family was into dealing drugs. And at first, I would just invest my money into the, drug, into the family drug business. And sooner or later, I thought I was getting smarter. I said, ain't no sense me giving them my money when I can take the money myself and make more money. So that's how I got involved in selling drugs. First, I started out just selling weed. Then I started selling powder cocaine. Then I was introduced to a faster way to make money. So we came into what we call crack cocaine. And we started selling crack cocaine. We had a good run. Uh, and I always kept a job because I felt that if I had a job, it would keep the police off me. They would never be on my trail because I felt that I'm able to prove where my money coming from. But uh, make a long story short, in 1995, I'm on my way home from work. At this time, I was working for Hardy. I was on my way home. I seen the police kept following me. I already had an idea that they was on my uh, trail anyway. So, because uh, they had got some people that I was working with involved in, in the drug business. And uh, on my way home, a police stopped me. I pulled over. He came to the car and said, hey, Mr. Joyner, uh, man, we got a warrant for your arrest. Your license suspended. I said, no, my license not suspended, sir. Uh... He said, yeah, 
Well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Jordan, day your lucky day. We're going to let you go. So I said, okay. I, I sat there for a minute. I turned my music back up in my car and began to come on down South Grand. At this time, I was living in a neighborhood called Evergreen Terrace. Uh, so as I got into Evergreen, the police stopped me again and said, hey, Mr. Jordan, we got a warrant for your arrest. I said, man, the police just stopped me. What did you want with me? Well, Mr. Joyner, uh, yeah, we got a warrant for your arrest. Now, he didn't tell me it was a federal warrant. He just told me they had a warrant. And it was an officer that I knew, so it was much easier for me to talk to him because he was a community office name, name uh, Randy. So he said, hey, Leonard, uh, man, I got to take you in. I don't want to, but it's my job. I got to take you in. So they put me in back of the squad car, didn't put no handcuff on me or nothing. You know, he said, well, we'll take you to a couple places. If they say you don't have a warrant, we'll let you go. So they, at this time, we had a county jail over on Jefferson Street. They took me there. They didn't have a warrant for me. We just had a new county building built. They took me by there, but we didn't stop. So I began to wonder, where are we going? We can't go to the county building. We turned down a dark alley that led to 6th Street. So I dropped my head and said, man, where am I going? So as I raised up, I seen a mail truck. And from previous family members being arrested, I knew what that meant. I said, kiss my wrist, man, the Fed got me. And they did. So as we pulled up to the post office downtown, they got me out of the car. At this time, I got no handcuff on. A big old guy come out of the federal building, and he talking to the police officer and asked him, why this guy not in handcuff? You know they listen, I'm in danger. So I'm stuck, I'm looking, I'm not handcuffed. There are no shackles, nothing on my feet. I'm so shocked that the Fed got me, I couldn't even run. I just stood there looking at them. Found this big old tall guy come down and said, hey, how you doing, Mr. Jordan? I'm just looking at him. He said, my name, uh, Bruce Herman. You know me? No, I don't know you. He said, well, Mr. Jordan, you finna go to prison for a long time. Yeah, right, for what? I ain't did nothing wrong. Immediately I said, I ain't did nothing wrong. So I tell you what, Mr. Jordan, come on in. So he took me in the building and uh, he got to talking to me. He told me what the charge was and all this. It's a joke to me because I'm thinking they never caught me with nothing. So how I'm in trouble? I ain't never been in trouble, no serious trouble. So I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> Make a long story short, he said, Mr. Jordan, you got the chance to get on the bus first. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you can help yourself. Well, you know, coming from the street, we didn't believe in working with the police. So I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have no idea what you're talking about, who you're talking about. Though my brothers, my cousins and stuff, I don't know what you're talking about. Make a long story short, he said, okay. But I tell you what, we like you. We'll bring somebody else in to talk to you. So this other guy coming in that I know, he said, hey, Lennon, they not playing, man. They not the state, man. 
you know, you know, when we raided your dead house back in the days, we caught you in there, you was able to let go because we didn't think you was a part of it. But when they got you this time, these people are not playing. They got you. Help yourself. So everybody that talked to me that night kept telling me to help myself. Make a long story short, it went in one ear and out of the other ear. I wasn't trying to hear it. Dumb to the fact. And uh, so they put me in a cell. And I will never forget this. This guy came up to the cell and said, you know what? Okay, we finna go get your whole family. And we finna have a family reunion with your family. A few minutes later, he started bringing all my family members. Uh, my brother, who was named Willie, they brought him in and said, well, we got Willie. We got cheap. They do all our nickname, street name. They brought us all in. And uh, they put us all in the same cell and told us to get our story together. <laughs> uh, my brother, Richard, uh, quite a few. They even mentioned my mom's name. Uh, and stuff, but uh, later on, this one guy came, I forget his name, came to the cell and said, Leonard, guess what? You ain't gonna believe us. We got to connect too. We got them up in Chicago too. Jay, uh, all them, he named everybody's name. And lastly, all they bought in my nephew, who named is, we call him Duke. They bought him in and said, We got Duke calling too. We got him, so they had us all. They said, man, y'all in serious trouble. We'll make a long story short. Uh, we all end up getting prosecuted and sent to prison. Like I say, I did nearly two decades. You did about 17 years, is that right? Yes, somewhere about 17 years, yes. Now, in that case, I was the prosecutor in the case. I was the assistant U.S. attorney, and the uh, charge was initiated by a complaint that was supported by a fairly lengthy affidavit. 167 pages. How many pages? 167. 167 pages. Yes. And that affidavit described not only your criminal activity, but those of other members of your family, sources, and other people that were all part of an ongoing course of drug trafficking activity, yes, is that right? that is correct. Ultimately, you were convicted of that. Yes, that's correct. You pled guilty. Yes, that's correct. And you appealed the case. Yes, I did. <laughs> and there's a case on appeal that anybody can read, United yes. States versus Leonard Joyner in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Yes, that's correct. You lost that appeal. Yes. And you went to prison. Yes, I did. I want to talk to you about your prison experience, but before that, let's get a few more details about what led up to that. You had said that for a period of time, you invested in the family drug business, but you weren't part of the family drug business. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, now, when you talk about the family drug business, uh, how did that happen? I mean, how did, you, how did your family end up in the drug business? And why? Can you explain that? Yes, you know, uh, we felt that this would be a new way of us coming out of property. Like I say, I grew up very, very poor in a large family. I have 11 brothers and six sisters. And uh, 
We seen that as a way to have an extra income. Uh, we didn't think what we was doing was wrong or was really hurting nobody in the beginning of it. Uh, and my dad, my dad was in a wheelchair and he was selling, uh, like I said, marijuana. You know, we all were like, okay, we'll do this. And, you know, as you continue to deal with drugs and the time changed, so we went into selling powder cocaine. Uh, and then we went into selling crack cocaine. So that's how I really got involved in that. And uh, just to answer your question, at first I was like uh, giving them money and they would give me triple back the money I would give them. And uh, I just seen that, why would I do that when I can make money of my own? So that's how I really got involved into selling uh, crack cocaine. At the time of your arrests, you and your family were major suppliers of cocaine and crack cocaine here in Springfield. Is that right? Yes. We worked out a, a location called the John Hayden Home Project. We were well-known and well-respected in that uh, community. Even though we were doing the wrong thing, we tried to cover our action up by doing good things like feeding the community. If there were kids we seen with no shoes, we would buy them shoes and stuff. So that was a way of us trying to say, hey, it's not so bad what we're doing. We're just trying to couple up our action. You ended up in some situations where there were guns involved. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Will you tell us about that? Well, you know, whenever you're involved in selling drugs, whether with your family or just with anybody, you have rivalry, gang member, then you have misunderstanding. Even with your partnership, you have misunderstanding uh just a little bit, like one of the game members that we had run into was called uh, Eight Ball Posse. Uh, we had a run in, it was over a drug deal and uh, gambling on the street corner, and one thing led to another. So we got into that altercation with them. Also, there was issue in the family where, where money wasn't calculated or we forgot how the drug was divided because we would divide the drug among the family. And so I even had a little run-in like with family members as well. Now, when you talked about having a run-in with the eight-ball posse, uh, that at least at one point, and probably more than one point, ended up involving guns. Is that right? Yes, yes, we're done. Uh, the gun is used for your protection. Uh, one of the things that we believe in was you can't, pop the pistol or shoot the gun and sell drugs because you draw attention to yourself. So the only time that we would pick up the gun was to defend ourselves. We feel that somebody has violated us. Uh, someone tried to take over our territory or maybe someone had robbed one of us because in dealing drugs, there are stick-up boys, stick-up guys that rob you guys. They don't sell drugs. They just rob the drug dealer. And in your back and forth with the eight ball posse, there was some shooting. Yes, yes. Uh, as well as with the Viceroy gang, uh, I recall one incident where we threw a party and uh, we had a run in with the Viceroy and uh, one of my best friends got shot. His name was Michael Dent. Uh, this is public information. So his name was Michael Dent. He got shot right in front of my face. Uh, so there was retaliation. We're going out, try to hurt one of them. You heard the one out, we're going to hurt one of yours. That was our mindset at this time. So, 
And then, like I say, the eight ball possum with them, they was more like wanting to control the whole set, uh, the John Hay home. So we felt that, hey, you're not finna run us out of this project. We live here too. There's enough money out here for us all to get money, but they didn't see it that way. So we stayed heated with them quite a bit on who territory it was. Now, by this point, you had come a long way from your childhood where violence and drug dealing was not a part of your life, at least gun violence was not part of your life. And then here you are in the middle of all this, little by little, looking back at that, what, what prevented you once there started, once bullets started to fly, what prevented you from getting out of the drug business? Why didn't you give it up and walk away? It was dangerous. Yes, that's correct. It's dangerous, but selling drugs is also addiction. You become addiction to selling the drug. Like me, I felt like if I wasn't out there selling drugs, man, I got to do something. Also, along with what do you mean you've got to do something? If you weren't out there selling drugs, what would you feel like? I would feel like I'm missing something. I'm missing something. My whole day would be messed up. Uh, man, I gotta get this money, man. I need this money. It felt like the street were calling me. You need to be out here. You need to be out here. So selling drugs, I think you become more addicted to selling drugs than you do using drugs. Reason I say that is through my experience. I never used no drug. I never smoked no weed. I never smoked a cigarette. I never snorted no cocaine or did no crack cocaine. But yet, indeed, if I wasn't out there, or say we ran out, man, I don't care how far I had to travel to go get it, I would go and go get it. Same thing as a user. That user walk all night looking for somebody to purchase the drug from. You the same way when you're a dealer. You're looking for somebody to buy from as well. When it came time that you were getting arrested, and that you got arrested, uh, you ended up having a change of perspective about a lot of things because you were under arrest. Is that right? Yes. And subsequently, you've gone through a lot in prison. You've had a lot of time to think about it. As you look back now, you said that, you said that at the beginning of this, when you and your family got involved in the drug business, you didn't feel that you were really hurting anybody. Is that right? That's correct. What about now as you look back at it? How do you feel about that? Well, I, as I look back over my life, I'm very disappointed with uh, the way I handled things because my mother didn't raise us that way. And I felt that I was part of a lot of the children going without. A lot of kids being addicted to crack cocaine, baby coming into the world addicted to cocaine. As I look back on that. Crack babies? Yes, yes. And, uh, how I hurted a lot of people, even though I had no intention of hurting them, that doesn't change the fact that I hurted people by being a drug dealer. Cause kids to go without food because we would take food stamp and stuff as well. Uh, so it, it sort of tear me apart when I look back at my old lifestyle. But at that time, that was my state of mind. Uh, I, I always ask people to forgive me. Uh, 
I'm always trying to do something positive to help the young individual as well. You ended up going to prison. You ended up serving 17 years in prison. Tell us about your prison experience. Well, going to prison really saved my life. You know, it saved my life because it gave me an opportunity to die to myself. I was my worst enemy, meaning that I was destroying myself as well as my community, my family, and everything. But while I was in prison, my first, what, four years or so, I blamed everybody except myself. I felt that everybody would did me wrong. I feel like the whole world had turned their back on me. And I didn't think I belonged in prison. I didn't think what I did would really want the time that I was given or just going to prison. I felt that, man, they could have gave me probation, gave me a warning or something. But as I look back on that, if they would have done that, I would not have changed. In fact, you've written since that you had several occasions, several warning signs that caused you to think that you're going to be arrested, but you kept going. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, one, one sign was uh, police stopped me. Police stopped me and said, uh, Lena, how you doing? How, how your cocaine business going? What are you talking about? Well, tell you what, Leonard, I see you again. And he just took off. Uh, I kept getting a lot of strange phone calls. Uh, I would see different cars sitting in front of the house, the car following me. So all those warning signs, it would scare me for a minute. I'd go back, oh, it's okay, I'm good. Right back into what I was doing. So even with all those warning signs, you kept going in the drug business up until the day you got arrested. Yes, that's correct. It's an addiction. Like I said earlier, it's an addiction. The street were calling me. You got to be out here. I felt that if I wasn't out there, I was letting the people down. Okay, so let's get back to your prison experience. So you, for a period of time, were blaming everybody else? Yes, I blame everybody except myself. Uh... But one day I'm walking the yard around the track, uh, trying to regroup, just, you know, I didn't fear prison. I didn't fear prison. I didn't fear nobody doing nothing to me while I was in prison. But what I did fear was the unknown. The unknown knowing what to expect because I had never been incarcerated. And there were people from all walks of life in there with me, from every country you can think of. I met people that was in there with me. And uh, as one day I walked on the track and there was this old guy that said, hey, Jordan, let me talk to you. In prison, everybody called you by your last name. I said, what do you want with me, old man? He said, come, let me talk to you. He said, I see greatness in you. And all that toughness that you portrayed I see greatness in you. Hey, John, if you don't remember nothing else that I said to you today, remember this. I have never known a man to choke to death from swallowing his pride. That alone began to change my life. 
I begin to look outside of the prison walls and the barbed wire fence. Uh, I had dropped out of school, so I didn't have a GD or I hadn't graduated from school. And I wanted to be a chef. And they had a cooking program. The judge had sent me to a prison where they had a cooking school at because I was also the one cooking the crack cocaine. So he said, you know, I'll help you out, Mr. Jordan. So he sent me to Oxford, Wisconsin Federal Prison. They had a cooking school. But I couldn't get right in the cooking program because it required you to have a GED. So I had to first get my GED. Then I got in the program. I completed the cooking program and stuff. Uh, but, and people began to respect me in prison. I began to do a lot of positive things in prison. Uh, and I began to feel better about myself. You started, you, you turned a corner. But will you tell us a little bit before we pick that up again? Tell us a little bit about what it was like being in prison. Well, being in prison was like being in another world to me. Because like I said, I was there with people from all walks of life. Uh, in federal prison, they required you to have a job or go to school uh, or something. So I had a job as a cook. Uh, there was something like, I think something like 3,500 inmates there. And every morning at four o'clock, I was woken up to go to the kitchen to prepare food for the inmate. Uh, and uh, I would be like, man, I'm making 12 cents an hour. I couldn't call in, I couldn't say I was sick, I had to be there. But uh, in the process of it all, it was real challenging for me, you know, knowing that I done left my children on the street, no one to care for them really. Uh, it was just frightening, but once I really got to looking at it from a positive point of view, I said, you know what? This might be what I needed. So, and I began to take a reality check on myself. Tell us about that. Reality check on myself was, is this what my mother would want for me? Is this what my mother expected of me? But most of all, is this what I want for myself? How can I ask my children to be positive and get their education when I'm not there? So I put myself in their shoes. I put all my pride and stuff behind just to fulfill that empty space in them where I knew I had to come out and be a better example for them. Now, I've heard prison described as crime college. What do you think about that? Well, it's all depending on your outlook on prison. There's two things about prison. As you said, you can either do the time or the time do you. Now, if the time going to do you, you're going to think negative. You're going to do negative. You're going to try to learn how can I go back out there and be smarter than the police or the cop or the FBI, whoever might be chasing you. Now, if you on the positive side of it and want to better yourself, you say something like this. Hey, man, I got to get out of prison before I'm released from prison. Because it all is a state of mind. 
is all is in your way of thinking. You have to leave all your negative ways behind you if you want to come out here and be successful. And once I got past that, blaming everybody else and accepting my responsibility, I began to grow. I began to take prison as a learning experience for me, a place where I can educate myself, to prepare myself to come out here, be a better father, be a better son, be a better grandfather. Uh, so prison saved my life. As I said earlier, I was my worst enemy. I would tell everybody that I would destroy myself as well as others. What if you had been sentenced to a shorter period of time, maybe five years in prison or something like that? Would the outcome have been the same for you? Would you still say the same thing, that prison saved your life if you only served, were sentenced to five years? No, no, <laughs> no, because like I said, my first four years, I blame everybody else. If I would have gotten out, got a five-year sentence, I would have been on that one side of the fence where, hmm, I can get a little smarter. I can be more, better connection. So, no, I wouldn't be able to say the same thing. I probably, ain't no problem in it. I still have been a drug dealer. It would have been crime college for you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Matter of fact, I probably would have graduated with honor. You'd have more connections in the criminal world? Yes. More education and how to commit crime? More smarter. How to get away with it? Yes. Yes. Now, this change, though, this change in perspective, did that happen all at once or was it over time? No, it's a process. It was over time. Uh, knowing that I had an out date, that was a good thing. I knew I had an out date. I didn't have a life sentence. And I was in there with people who have life sentence, plus 20, plus 30, plus 60. Uh, one of the seller I had, uh, he had a life sentence plus 20. And uh, he would tell me, we'd sit up and talk, and he would be like, man, at least you got an out there. You get an opportunity to go home to your family. That 20 years might seem long to you, but it's like one day to me compared to the life sentence I got. I would never see my family again. I would never get to hold my kids again. My kids don't even come visit me. So you meet a lot of people in there that their family have turned on them, have turned their back on them. Uh, so I took that to be like, wow, I do. That make a lot of sense. I got an opportunity to go back out there and get it right. This old man that you talked to that said he saw greatness in you, did you ever have any more conversations with him about that? Yes, yes. Uh, once I... Uh, Maybe a year or so down the road, he was still there at the institution with me. And uh, he said, Mr. Jordan, I see you got your GED. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Mr. Jordan, I believe in you, but that's not what matters. What matters is, do you believe in yourself? And as I got transferred from there, from Oxford, Wisconsin, I went to uh, another prison. Uh, in the federal system, they worked through a point system. Every time your point get lower, they transferred you to a lower level of prison. So when I got transferred and I got ready to leave that morning, I told him, thank you, sir. Thank you. He said, 
you know what? No, thank you. And I hadn't heard no more from him. But it worries see, I live with me to this day. If you had never met that man, do you think things would have turned out the same for you? No, because I was so bitter with myself as well as with other people. Like I said, I thought the world owed me something. I felt that everybody has mistreated me. I felt that it just wasn't fair for me to be in prison. But if he had never said those words to me, I probably would never got to thinking positive and seeing outside of the race of why. Because as I said earlier, one thing about being in prison, you either go and do the time or they do you, meaning that you sit in there and think you become a smarter person. Is that role model of that man play any part in who you are today and the things you're trying to do today? Yes, truly, truly play a part from the point of view of it teach you that you must believe in yourself. You're not who people think you are. You're who you believe you are. And this is one of the things I always tell everybody that comes through the reentering program is this right here. Don't let your past destroy your future. If Mr. Johnson, that old man, had never said that to me, my past probably would still be haunting me right now. But right now, I believe in me. I love me. I feel that it's my duty to help others not to make the same mistake that I once made. So in a way, you're becoming, you have become the Mr. Johnson yes. to other people. Yes. To try to do for them what he did for you. Yes, exactly. Okay, so you, let's go back in time here, back into prison and you're going to lower level institutions. Tell us about that, the rest of your prison experience. Well, well, one of the things that prison about, prison that was excited to me was this right here, was that uh, when I got transferred, I got chance to experience something I had never experienced before. I got chance to fly on a plane. I had never flown on a plane in my life. Uh, they flew me to what we call uh, Oklahoma City. When we got on the plane, uh, we flew to Oklahoma City, which is a transition center for people to get transferred from there every day, all day. And uh, when the plane landed into the institution, our feet never touched the ground. When the plane landed into, inside of the institution, we got off the plane, we was in the institution. That was experience to me, but uh, seeing how they transported us and all, and I was like amazed at that. And, and that let me knew that, wow, there's a lot of people incarcerated, man. Lots of people locked up. And I met some people in prison that you wouldn't believe. Can you explain? Well, I got a chance to meet uh, this guy named Michael Vick, who was a quarterback for Atlanta Falcon back in the days. Uh, I also got an opportunity to do time with one of our former governor, which is public information, uh, Governor Ron. I did time with him as well. Uh, yes. Uh, I met a lot of politician people, a lot of attorney, 
As a matter of fact, I met one of the attorney that was on our case that represented one of my co-defendants as well in prison. Uh, just to share a little bit lighting on that, when me and him seen one another, I'm walking the yard and I see him. So I walk up to him and said, you know me? He said, no. I said, you sure? I said, you from Springfield, Illinois? Yeah. And your name? <laughs> Uh, Mark Vincent? I said, let me throw a name out at you. Uh, Jane Collins. Immediately he said, oh, you from that Joyner case? Yes, I'm Leonard Joyner. James Collins was Duke Collins, is that right? Yes. Your nephew? Yes. So me and Mr. Vincent became okay with one another because we both were from Illinois and when you're from Illinois, you saw it, look out for one another. Uh, I told Mr. Vincent, you have no problem with me. I don't have no hardship towards you. It's nothing personal towards you. you. I mean, you felt you did the best job you could to represent him. Uh, I don't know what really happened with you and him in the case, sir, but you won't have no problem with me. But I could tell that he didn't feel too safe being around me but I ensure him that there would be no problem. At some point, you were making the transition from prison. It, the time you were going to get out was drawing closer. Tell us about that period of your prison experience. Wow. Uh, well, first of all, uh, in 2007 and eight, uh, they were talking about changing the crack law, which would reduce uh, individual time that had a crack cocaine case. So I filed for a reduction in my sentence. I got turned down the first time. I appealed it again. I got turned down. 2009, I filed again. I got denied as well. Then in 2010, they said they're going to change it again. I was also denied again in 2010. So about, but the funny part about this is I'm able to help other people get their time reduced, but I couldn't help myself. That was amazing to me. How are you helping other people get their time reduced? Well, I will file the paperwork for them under pro se and tell them that uh, based on the Fair Sentence Act, this individual sentence should be reduced by three levels. So, so you, you were the jailhouse lawyer? Yes, I was a jailhouse lawyer, and I felt I was good. Uh, if I can go back into the prison system, people, individuals would say, man, we sure miss you here. But uh, so make a long story short, I decided to write my senator, who was Senator Dick Durbin. I, because he was backing this bill, the Fair Sentence Act bill. So I wrote him, and this is what I had to say to him in that letter. Dear Sentence Dick Durbin, my name is Leonard Joyner. I'm serving a crack cocaine sentence. Uh, you passed a bill called the Fair Sentence Act, and I just wonder why I'm not eligible. I sent him all the denial letter I had got. So about a month later, I think about a month later, my caseworker called me into the office and said, Leonard, uh, your sentence is going to be reduced. 
So you're going to be going home soon. Uh, a month later, a month later, I get bad news for my family. My sister Annie, make her soul rest in peace, was dying of breast cancer. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, so I filed uh, a letter, a hardship, to be transferred to see my sister. But before the letter could go through, uh, they respond back to me. My sister had passed away. Uh, at this time, I knew that I was going to get released. I was told that I was going to be released in November, November the 1st. Uh, 2011. My sister's death was in May. So that means I'm less than, what, six, seven months from going home. So when I filed the paperwork, the warden came back. They denied me. Even though I had all the money to pay to come to the funeral and all of this, they denied me, say I was a threat to society. I said, are y'all serious? I'm a threat to society. I done went all the way from the top of the prison level down. I'm at a prison camp at this time. I said, I'm at a prison camp. I can walk away. There's no fence or nothing. I can walk away. Nevertheless, they denied me. Uh, so I didn't get chance to come to her funeral or nothing. So I remember Annie. I'm sorry to hear about her passing. Yes. Three days later, three days later, they tell me, uh, my case manager tell me, I couldn't believe they denied you. Like you say, you had a camp. But backing it up a little bit, I wanted to leave anyway. I wanted to leave the prison. I mean, I'm contemplating on leaving. Okay, I'm going to my sister's funeral. I'll be back, y'all do whatever y'all got to do. But in my but I had read something that said as long as you back within 72 hours, now the escape. So now, the, you know, people tell me that your mind is the devil workshop. So all this stuff went through my head. Go ahead and leave. You'll be back in 72 hours. You know, so I'm contemplating, I'm contemplating. I said to myself, I don't need too much time to do this, you know. Let me make the right choices. And at this time, I was teaching a class called PMA, Positive Mental Attitude. <laughs> so I said, you know what? How would that look to the rest of the guys? You know, in prison, you become family with the individual. You become so close with the individual. Your choices doesn't affect you, but it affects others. The impact that you have on individual life. Some people see you as their family. Now, you're the only family that some people might have at times. Because so, when my family came visit me, my family would visit others as well. So uh, I made the right choice. My family understood, hey, I couldn't come. Me nor my brother Jesse was allowed to come, neither one of us. And he was at a camp as well. So you could have just walked away. Yeah, we could have walked away, but I made the right choice. I mean, I do not regret it. Uh, I feel I made the right choice. I feel I made the choice that she would have wanted me to make. At some point, you wrote a book. You started writing a book. I really wasn't intending to write a book. I was just writing to get the pain outside of me, what I was feeling 
I say it's better to put it on paper than to keep it all blog up in me. Uh, at this time, I was a member of what we call the suicide team in prison, where people would commit suicide and stuff. Uh, I would have to watch over them while they in the cell, make sure they doesn't do nothing to themselves and stuff. And uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm saying, man, I, I better get this, write this stuff on paper so I won't start thinking crazy. So, uh, and I began jotting stuff down on paper and stuff. I never intended to write no book. I just wanted to keep my mind from being incarcerated. You know, it's one thing for you to be physical locked up. But long as you doesn't get incarcerated in your mind, you can make it. So that's how this book begins. I started writing the book in 2002. And it took me, I finished it when I got out. Let's stop for a minute and let's, let's show people your, your book. Would you hold that up in front of you? Yes. All right, so that's your book, LJ's Cocoon. Book. Yes. And read us what it says in the front. Besides, L, the title's LJ's Cocoon. Well, down at the bottom of it, it said, going to prison saved my life. Really? Yes. What I mean by going to prison saved my life, because if I hadn't went to prison, there's a good chance that something worse could have happened to me. Because when you're a drug dealer, you doesn't only put yourself in harm way, you put your family in harm way as well. You have an individual out there that rob you, they feel that they tie you up, take you to your house because you got money or drug that they think you should have, even though you might tell them, man, I ain't got nothing in this house. It's all in the bank or I got it in a safe. Right then and there, they not trying to hear that. So, and they not really thinking right, just blow your head off or whatever. You wrote the book, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Who did the cover on the book? I designed the cover and everything myself. The only thing I self-published it, only thing ex Lever, which is the company they did, was type and print it for me. But I did all the work myself. All yourself? Yes, I never knew I had this talent until I went to prison. I never knew I had talent to do none of this until I went to prison. That's part of me saying that prison saved my life. The book is about, it's essentially an autobiography. It's a story of your life. Yes. Up to the time you published the book. Yes. And uh, I wrote it based on who I was. I wanted the book to be me. Uh, I'm a country boy. I grew up in Mississippi, so some of the word in there is wrote in what we call country grammar. Country grammar means broken English, in other words. Uh, I wanted people to see who I really was. Uh, I compared my life to the birth stage of a butterfly. You know how that butterfly struggles to get out of that cocoon, but once that butterfly outside that cocoon, it's something for the whole world to see. You spread its wing and let the world see it. When do you feel you came out of the cocoon? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I feel that I came out of the cocoon like, after I talked with man, Mr. Jones, I began to crack the shell then because he told me something that I still live by this day. I have never known a man choke to death on swallowing their pride. Pride was just keeping me away from so many things. Did religion play any part in this? 
Okay. Yes, you better believe it. You better believe it. Uh, it definitely took faith. Uh, one thing about me, I was always raised up to trust God, to believe in God. Uh, my mother used to always take us to church. And as I got older and started living with my dad, even when I was selling drugs, I, I went to church uh, knowing that, hey, this is wrong. But one thing I believe that God, I believe that God show us different signs. Even God was talking to me. You know, there's a sign that God trying to tell us something. At this time, God was showing me so many different signs. Hey, just not what you want to do. Uh, even when I caught the state case, my dad, like I say, my dad used to run a weed house. I got caught up in that house one time. Nothing happened to me. They let me win. Nothing happened to me. I still kept going, kept going. You know, so, and I knew what God telling me, this is not for you. But because God gave a free will a choice, he allowed me to continue to live in that. Well, I continue to live in that lifestyle. But even in, like even when in prison, I started going to church. I played a big part in church. Uh, I was what we call a playwright for church. I would write plays. And we would do plays that I wrote in church, spiritual plays. And uh, one of my favorite ones was about this little boy named Leroy. The little boy named Leroy, he wanted a bite for Christmas. Leroy, about 15, he went in the kitchen one day and told his mom, Mom, I want a red bite for Christmas. The mom told Leroy, Leroy, you had not been a good child, Leroy. Well, I tell you what, Levi, I want you to go upstairs to your room and write God a letter. Tell God why you think you deserve that bite. So Levi stumbled up the step into his room and began to write God letter number one. Dear God, I've been a real good boy. Could you please send me a red bite? Well, Levi knew that wasn't the truth, so he balled that paper up and began to write God letter number two. And letter number two, Levi said this to God. God. I've been an okay boy. I would like a red bite for Christmas. Once again, Leroy knew that wasn't true, so he bought that letter up as well and wrote letter number three to God. Dear God, I have been an all right boy. I would like a red bite for Christmas. Once again, Leroy knew that wasn't true, so he wrote God letter number four. In letter number four, Leroy had this to say to God. Dear God, I hadn't been good, but I promise you, if you send me that red bite, I would be a better boy. Leroy knew that wasn't true neither, so he bought up letter number four and wrote God letter number five. This is what Leroy had to say to God in letter number five. Dear God, I know you know who I am. And you know my heart. But I had went down to the church and grabbed the statue of the Virgin Mary, who I know is your mother. If you ever want to see her again, you better send me a red bike and you know who. Signed Leroy. So that right there showed me that we tried to make deal with God. You know, and knowing that we're not going to do the right thing. But in prison, God helped me accountable. 
my faith, I begin to receive blessings from God. I begin to prosper. Even in the prison system, I had a good job. I'm a head cook in there. People respecting me. I never had a problem, no fights, no nothing. So it was great for me. Okay, then you got out. Were, they, were you released back to Springfield? Yes. Um, on the day of my release, I heard a, I was still laying in the bed, even though I knew I was going to be released. You know, a lot of people say they be scared of coming out out of prison after serving a Lenten sentence. I wasn't scared because I knew I had prepared myself while I was in there. So when they called me down to R&D, they gave me a $25 check. Yeah, a $25 check, a bus ticket. It sent me on my way. It took me a day and a half to get to Springfield. At this time, I was in Atlanta. But I stuck out like a sore thumb on the bus. People knew I must have just got out. They could tell about what I had on. I just didn't fit in. But nevertheless, I had a plan. I had a mission. I was on a mission to come out here. As I had told the men that I left behind, I'm going to come out here and make a difference, make a way for us all. So I kept my word to them. When I got home, I had the young lady I was involved with who have stuck with me during the uh, length of time. And uh, when I got out, I was on what we call five-year survivor release. Had a pretty decent uh, probation offer lady that that pushed me and challenged me. Uh, finding a job was kind of tough. It took me like, what, about a year to find a job, I think. But once I got a job, they let me work for a little while. Then they fired me because I had a criminal background. Uh, now this job was as a cook, is that right? Yes. At the Hilton Hotel. Uh, I didn't last that long. <laughs> because I had a criminal record. At this time, their policy didn't allow them to hire criminal. Did they like the work that you were doing? They loved the work I was doing, but just because their policy didn't hire them to hire uh, ex-offending, they had to uh, terminate me immediately. But they say I won the best steak and over-easy cooker they had. <laughs> and. How long did you work there before they found out about your criminal record? Not that long, probably less than a month. And what did you do after that? After that, uh, I continued to work little other little jobs and stuff. Uh, I went to a place called the Tower of Refugee. They couldn't help me, uh, none of those organizations. Uh, and I landed a job through uh, Kappa Township with the Boys and Girls Club. And this was like around 2013, 14, somewhere in there. Uh, You're still working for the... I'm still employed by the Boys and Girls Club to this day. In fact, we're sitting in the one of the rooms in which you work with the young people. Yes, uh, we're sitting in what we call the education room. I am a, what we call a youth special at work with teen... And in the background behind you is a whiteboard. It's got information about uh, nutrition and 
what people should eat and what they shouldn't eat. Is that right? Yes. Uh, we try to teach the youth here to be healthy, to eat properly. You know, there's a saying that say we shouldn't live to eat, we should eat to live. So we try to provide them with nutrition and stuff. As you see on the board there, we have the different type of stuff like protein and stuff that is good for you. Everything that's good to you is not good for you. So that's what we try to show them. You uh, also started a, a program here or work in a program at the Boys and Girls Club about using computers and technology, is that right? Yes. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, I, when I first got out, uh, it was tough for me. Uh, I didn't even, they had what we call a cell phone when I first got out. I didn't even know how to work a cell phone because when I went in, we had pages. But when I got out, they got cell phone. A little four-year-old child showed me how to work a cell phone even how to work with computer and stuff, young people showed me because this is their time, you know, so. But we here have a computer lab here uh, where we help them do their homework after school program with their homework. We also help the team to find employment. As a matter of fact, they have a job fair coming up where we help the young people find jobs and stuff as well. We help them do resume and stuff on the computer and stuff. How do they feel about you here? They love me here. Uh, I'm a great part of the family here. They uh, administrator really believe in me. Uh, they pretty much give me the green light here. You also started a program working with other people who are getting out of prison. Tell us about that. Well, there's a program that I came up with called SING. Uh, SING, like I said earlier, is an acronym for shifting into new gear. When you come out of prison, you have to shift into a whole new gear. You can't come out here thinking nobody owes you nothing. And in order for you to succeed out here, you need people that are going to be willing to give you a chance. And our mission at SING is to provide them with a roadmap of service and resources that help them to readjust and redirect their life and be successful in the community. How many people have you worked with as part of this program that you run? Right now we have served over 324 individuals. Uh, all of the individuals right now, if you was to ask me what would be our success rate right now, with the individual we have like a 94% success rate most of the individuals that come through this program do not return back to prison because we prepare them with the thing they need to succeed in life. And one of the most important things is employment. Employment is key to successful reentry because if I have no money, no food, nowhere to live or nothing, guess what? I revert back into what I know to be best. We, we go into what we call a surviving mode. A surviving mode means that I don't care about the consequence. I'm not worried about the consequence. I'm trying to survive. I'm trying to provide for my family and myself right now. I know what it's like to be in prison if I get caught. But right now, I'm just trying to do for my family. So how do you find these people, or how do these people find you to get involved in your program? Well, right now, uh, we are inside the IDOC, Illinois Department of Correction. Uh, we send out emails. Uh, we have a web Facebook page that they can go online, tell them about. But most of all, it comes through word of mouth. 
how many people at this time are work are in your program that you're working with? Right, right now we try to do about sixty individuals at a time. So right now, out of the uh, before we got these six that we have right now, out of the last six that we served and had completed the program, only two of them have gone back to prison. When you say we, who's we? We right now we have a very small staff. Uh, I am the director. Uh, my wife, Glory, is the assistant director, and uh, my board. That's all we have right now, so yes. So you created a not-for-profit corporation with the board of directors? Yes, that's correct. Who are some of the people in the board of directors? Well, first of all, I should maybe say that we have what we call a 501c3, which is a tax deductible exempt. Uh, some of the board members is Sherman Derman, who worked for Community Resource here in Sandman County. Uh, Warren Hertha, who is the uh, vice president who worked for Human Relations and the Mayor Office. We also have uh, Sarah, who worked for United Community Bank. Uh, Maria Crawford, who worked for the Family Guidance Center or the Halfway House, whatever one you want to use. And we have uh, Sam Johnson, who is uh, over near my housing center. Uh, and we have Watson Byrne, who is over the uh, community outreach for health awareness. When you and I met in the governor's office, or in the governor's, in a conference room in the governor's office, you told me that you, at that point, uh, which was about last Thanksgiving, you told me that at about that point you had worked with some 120-some people, I think active cases at that point. Mm -hmm. and at the end of that meeting, you took me aside and you said, by the way, Mr. Risley, you might be interested in knowing of those, there were 40-some, 40 42 or something like that, that were my former defendants. Yes, that's in correct. In cases where I was the prosecutor. That's correct. Is that right? That's correct. We have, uh, at this time, I had 42 individuals who have been prosecuted by you. Uh, but... Uh, and we, we make a joke out of, uh, boy, Mr. Rizzi, well, we all have something in common. Mr. Rizzi prosecute us all. Uh, but one of the things that I do tell the old guy is that this right here, you know, at this time, it was Mr. Rizzi's job at this time, you know, and uh, he was doing his job. Uh, I try to help the guys to keep a positive note about it. You know, we live and learn. We made mistakes. It was part of your job at the time. You didn't, you did what you had to do, but if we hadn't made the choice that we made, we would never have that dealing with you. But nevertheless, through dealing with you and dealing with you now have also helped me to grow. What do I mean by that? It helped me to have a heart of forgiveness you have also been an uh, inspiration to me to see that, hey, look, Len, I'm doing something different with what I'm doing. You know what I'm saying? Not saying that you would go back and change what you did. I mean, uh, just to see you in a different light right now, because like I say, on the day you called me, I was like, what do he want with me? 
And I say, mm. and he knows I went silent for a minute. I said, seriously? Calling me? Wow. I didn't know you had changed job neither, though. So I'm like, mm, what is it now? <laughs> so, but it wasn't that I feared that I had did nothing wrong. It was just more, uh, what could you have to say to me right now? When I called you, I still remember that conversation. It wasn't that long ago. And uh, I said, uh, Mr. Joyner, this is David Risley, formerly of the U.S. Attorney's Office. See that word, formerly? I didn't hear that word at first. <laughs> and I said, uh, now in the governor's office. Mm -hmm. And there was this long silence on the other end. And you said, Mr. Risley? Mm -hmm. Mr. Risley? <laughs> yeah. And that began... Now we're in regular communication with one another. We started out as legal adversaries, mm -hmm. opposite sides of the courtroom, mm -hmm. opposite sides of the law. Yes. Now we're friends and colleagues. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Because we have a common mission. Yes, we do. And that mission is to prevent people from making the kind of mistakes that you made. Yes. And you have this program that you've developed You've worked with over 300 and some people. You've got a, a tremendous success rate, according yes. to what you've told us, yes. in preventing people from going back when currently, uh, typically across the country and, and here in Illinois, it's, it's about half the people who get out of prison, go mm -hmm. back in a relatively short period of time, within three years, and those are just the ones who get caught. Exactly. Exactly. And yet you have a much higher success rate in the people you work with than that, correct? Yes. yes. And for that, how much do you get paid? How much funding do you receive to run that program right now? How much funding do I receive to run the program? Well, first of all, I would like to say that there is no pay involved for me. Uh, we, when I say we, I mean the same program. We realize on the community to make donations to us. Uh, right now, the community is very helpful to us, uh, especially during the Christmas holidays. Every year for Christmas, we give away gifts and toys and a meal to the people who are involved in the program. We give their kids two or three gifts apiece, and we serve the whole family, including the parents, a hot meal. We do this every year at the Pizza Ranch. In other words, you yourself get no income no income from this no my only my income now come from the boys and girl club and i work for the state of illinois when you say you work for the state of illinois what do you do yeah i'm i'm a child care specialist where i work with young people for the state what would you like to do where would you like to take this program well, my mission for this program uh, is this right here to ha to be able to serve more people, to be able to offer more resources and service to the individual, and to help our community, our city, our state, and our prison population to be reduced of uh, people going back to prison. What is it that you do in the program? Will you describe what happens? Uh, first of all, every individual in the program must come through what we call an intake assessment. 
during the intake assessment, I, I get information from you about your crime, your background, where you live and what you need and what is your purpose and what is your success plan. I have to get those things from you first. Once we go through that process, we then begin to deliver service and resource according to your need and your issue. And then once somebody is accepted into the program, what do you do? Well, once you accept into the program, everybody is required to go through what we call a finance literacy class. The reason that we ask you to go through the finance literacy class is to make sure that you understand how to budget your money. Because the key in budgeting your money because we don't never want to set you up for failure. If I help you get a house, I must know that you're going to be able and know how to pay your bill to sustain it because I don't want to set you up for failure. So that's why you have to go through the finance uh, literacy class. And once you go through that class, we then begin to offer you service according to your need. What kind of services? We provide with employment, education, like if you want to go back to school or take some type of vocation class, we work with Lincoln Land Community College, SIU, to try help with vocation class. Uh, we deal with mental health. We deal with uh, mental uh, issue class, uh, peer pressure. Uh, oh man, we just offer a roadmap of service. Uh, Whatever the need are, we try to meet the need. How do you help people with housing? Well, first of all, we try to target the landlord that will first house a felony. Uh, we develop a relationship with them. And then once they find a house, once an individual find a house, we team up with a lot of different resources. We'll pay their first month rent and their deposit for them as long as they're able to verify that they have an income to keep it going. And how about employment? How do you do that? We work with over 40 different employees that hire the ex-felony for us. We develop a relationship with them. We'll call, make a referral, or send this person out here. Uh, I have what we call a no-fire policy unless you talk to me first. What do you mean by that, Mr. Joyner? Well, what I mean by that is the relationship I have built with the employee, they'll call me, hey, Mr. John, we're having a problem with so-and-so. He was late today or she was late today. Or either we asked Ms. Sonso to go back and wash the dishes and she uh, didn't want to do it. So we just want to report that to you. So my thing would be, hey, let me talk to them. You go ahead, write them up, or let me talk to them and see can we get that back on track. So I bring that individual in and tell them, listen, hey, listen, I sent you out there. You have to start somewhere. When you was in prison, you worked for 12 cents an hour or less. This is an opportunity. You make $9 an hour or $8.25, whatever it may be. You, you have to crawl before you can walk. Hey, just gonna open some doors for you. Just to share some of my employees who have been in my program are manager at different restaurants now in other different places. So that's what we do. We just try to set you up where you can succeed. Pizza Ranch has been one of your main 
partners in this. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Pizza, pizza Ranch hired probably over 50% of my people for me. And how did that relationship develop and how is it working? Well, you know, when Pizza Ranch first came to town, I went to the unemployment office and I said, uh, hey, uh, let me see how the process going. And I went out there, I talked with Pizza Ranch and told them what I'm trying to do. And they said, mm, okay, uh, we might work with you on that. So at this time I had a client named Sam Dent. I said, hey, give this guy a chance first. And we'll build a relationship off that. You tell me yay or nay. Right now, Sam is a manager out at Pizza Ranch. They love him out there. And ever since then, they tell me send them many people as I can. As long as they got it open, they have no problem with it. Who are some of the other partners that you have who employ former felons? Well, I work with KFC, uh, Noodle Paddle, uh, Smoky Bone, uh, Green, Green Family Store for detailing cars and stuff, uh, Kappa Township, uh, AmeriCorps, oh man, D Auto World. Uh, You've got a list. I have a list that we give out, uh, that we give out to individuals that we use to help them to find the employee. How many companies are on that list? Right now we have like, last time I counted, we have probably 49, and that's good. 49 companies in Springfield? Yes, here in Springfield. That are willing to hire former felons? Yes. To give them a new start in a new life? Yes. And also, along that same line, uh, we just opened up a restaurant as well called Po' Boy Kitchen, which is a restaurant that me and my brother own together. And one of the requirements for you to work there is to have a felony. And that's a small restaurant located where in Springfield? We, we located at 1420 East Cook Street. You have among your uh, patrons who come there, police officers, is that right? Yes, police officers. Uh, uh, United States Marshal guys, uh, lots of other business come see us, uh, different county sheriff come see us, uh, the mayor come there. Uh, hey, man, it's just tremendous to see and be able to give back to the community and help give people a second chance. You have a different relationship with these authority figures now than you used to, don't you? Yes, and it feels great. Uh, you know, uh, I was just talking with the chief police uh, a few nights ago at a fundraiser. He said, Leonard, boy, I'm so proud of you, boy, because back in the days, well, you joined the kept us on the move, but uh, it's great to be able to work with you now, Mr. Jordan. You're a great inspiration. Keep up the good work. Anything else you want to add? Well, I, I'm a firm believer that everybody deserves a second chance. No one are exempt from making a bad choice in life. Leonard Joyner's story continues to unfold. After this interview was conducted, I decided to invest myself in his Shifting into New Gear program and am now a board member. 
And through Mr. Joyner, I've renewed contact with several Singh clients, who, like him, are also former defendants in cases I prosecuted. Stay tuned with this channel for interviews of some of them, with Mr. Joyner acting as my co-host. Hit the like button below and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes of Justice Voices, featuring stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.